Hi there, and welcome back to the first, uh, like I said, very nascent incarnation of a new podcast project that I have brewing called Mythic Americana. Uh, If you've stumbled upon this episode, this is part two of my look at Biltmore Estates in North Carolina. I recommend listening to part one in the feed first. If you've stumbled upon this and you're wondering, is this a Titanic podcast feed? It absolutely is. I um, won't be won't be hijacking the feed that many times, uh, but over the summer, you know, like I said, uh, in some uh, end of season episodes from my uh, season one uh, of Unsinkable, just a couple of fun things to to pop onto the feed for the summer. I wanted to let listeners know to Unsinkable listeners that I am incredibly behind on correspondence. I receive a lot of emails from listeners, which is just wonderful. Uh, And I don't like to answer them unless I have the time and um, really the the energy that you deserve for a response. Uh, So I I really only reply once I have time to sit down and really digest what you've said or asked or suggested and um, send a, a very, you know, to me, a very important response back to you. So if you've emailed and you haven't heard from me, it is because of that. I'm just behind and I don't want to send an auto response. I don't want to, and I'm not ignoring them, but I just, so it's a lot to keep up with. And uh, I am kind of officially still on hiatus for the main feed. It's been a chaotic summer. So I will get to messages and I appreciate all of your suggestions and thoughts. And I think that's it as far as announcements. I um, One last one, I guess, is I will be traveling for most of August and uh, a lot of it is Titanic related. So I'll have a lot to share in the fall uh, and on social media, uh, but uh, I will probably be kind of hard to get in touch with in August in terms of email or even social media DMs, which is how I communicate with a lot of you guys. It's I'm probably going to be sort of <laughs> logged off, but I promise uh, it is for the greater Titanic good in many, many ways. I'm also getting a lot of wonderful guests lined up for the fall on Unsinkable. It's going to be really exciting. All right, back to Biltmore. By the time Edith Dresser became Edith Vanderbilt and took up residence alongside George, Biltmore was an organism, a huge one, a living, breathing one, inhabited by tenants and workers and servants and naturalists, foresters. Farmers on the Vanderbilt land provided upwards of 30 dozen eggs per week to the main house. The dairy was in operation and would become perhaps the only truly lucrative, financially, uh, venture on the site, the pride of which was a herd of Jersey cows from the Vanderbilt family farm in Long Island. And if you've listened to part one, you kind of understand what a big deal that is. Chauncey Beetle's nursery was world-renowned almost from the start, offering plants and shrubs to the public and in catalogs that circulated. Carl Schenk was in the forest, literally working for Gifford Pinchot's original plan to improve the forest, but sometimes at odds with Pinchot about whether to make money off of it as well. The village that George had commissioned built as well, the church he'd built, it had all come to fruition. It was all brick and mortar and stone and however many more building materials now. And the house stood at the center of this world. 
George and Edith entertained guests from around the world as well. The home was awash in unparalleled luxury, but it secreted away within itself odd, unfinished bits. The music room had a bare, unfinished subfloor that Edith would cover with rugs and pillows where guests would play at a bit of bohemian energy, even though they were... (laughs) Not bohemian, although they did they did host a lot of artists and writers, but um, Edith Wharton being a, a very famous one. But don't know that a lot of true bohemians um, would have been camping out in their guest rooms. I don't think you know Jack Dawson would be <laughs> more. Although was he really a bohemian? I don't know. There's a conversation. So, um, and if you're listening to this and not a Titanic person, you're like. What? What is she talking about? So Edith worked to cover some of these unfinished parts, sort of hide them in fun ways. There was an organ without an actual organ in it. Just a, a lot of places that, uh, you know, the the theories are that George, as he neared the end of construction and was working on some of the more detailed parts, uh, ran out of money, <laughs> to uh, to put it bluntly, and had to sort of cut corners there at the end in a lot of the spaces inside. Christmas was a massive affair. Obviously, if you've you know visited during the winter time, you know it's a massive affair now in its current incarnation. Edith became quickly loved by families who worked on the estate, all of whom she purchased gifts for at the holidays each year. But the Vanderbilts weren't always there. I think it's a myth that George had shunned society in some way by running down to North Carolina and hiding away. But this just isn't true. I mean, George and Edith spent ample time in New York at the Fifth Avenue house and lots of time in Europe as their whole set did during this time. And as obviously the story of Titanic illustrates, fall and winter were typically for Biltmore for them. I talk a lot about the myth of Titanic representing some fall from grace, some loss of innocence of an era in 1912. And it's just wrong. And I've talked about that a lot on the podcast. Life itself was already chaotic. It was already in transition for myriad groups of people at the turn of the century. The turn of the century saw America and the world already bleeding metaphorically from the highs and the lows of life. Steel production, Andrew Carnegie's empire, Rockefeller's empire in oil, automobiles beginning to change the way people literally moved themselves and their lives. Intense wealth, crowded cities, intense poverty. Workers began to strike for rights, wealth disparity, already obvious and not passively accepted as some textbooks would leave you lead you to believe. The National American Women's Suffrage Association was hard at work. But according to author Denise Kiernan, whose book on Beltmore, The Last Castle, I mentioned in part one, time stood still at Beltmore. And honestly, I think it still does. George's library was and remains a centerpiece of the world there. 23,000 volumes, 10,000 on display on the shelves, 40 by 60 feet. And if you've been to Biltmore and you've walked into that library and you look up (laughs) all the shelves, there are two floors of them. There's like stairs leading into parts of it. It's if you're a literary person or a history person or just a, you know, 
book person in any way. It's it's pretty thrilling. And on the ceiling, Giovanni Pellegrini's painting The Chariot of Aurora, circa the 1720s, which consists of 13 different canvases that originally were on the ceiling at the Pisani Palace in Venice and is one of few of his still in existence today. And it's there. Like so much else there, it stayed and it's okay and survives. If Biltmore were a castle, was a castle, and Edith its queen, and George its king, and uh, judging by the research I did, a lot of uh, local newspapers and a lot of journalists at the time referred to them as just that, then it's fitting that the arrival of Cornelia Stuyvesant Vanderbilt seemed to some in Biltmore Village and Asheville and the world the arrival of a princess named after her famed grandfather, the Commodore. Cornelius Vanderbilt, and bestowed uh, the same old money New York Dutch middle name of her mother's, Stuyvesant, she was born at this place stuck in time, but also of so many times. Cornelia, born in 1900, right as the century turned, would straddle the older world and modernity in her own life, growing eventually into an artistic, complex, restless person living on the line between the Gilded Ages, fading glory, and the coming of progressive movements, the jazz age. And, you know, it's funny, the obsession with her as a baby that the Asheville community had, that journalists had, that uh, the wider world through reading uh, newspapers had at the time is, you know, my initial reaction when I read that, that, you know, sort of an obsession over a baby. <laughs> uh, I thought, how weird, what strange times. And then I realized that we still do exactly that. All of the royal babies, celebrities, babies, we still do it. We're still obsessed with babies of famous people. And it's sort of weird and sick. And I don't know why we're, I don't know why we do that. But there was notoriously a, I don't know why I use the word notoriously. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. But there was a, a mountain magnolia tree planted in Cornelia's honor when she was born. And uh, this has become a really important part of the estate grounds. Edith, very active in the community. I had never read enough about her. Uh, She obviously is the, you know, hostess of the estate, but she's also working in philanthropy. She runs a sewing school, a school for those kids on the estate. She even makes a sort of bus out of a wagon to get children to school on time. She finds um, these women, Charlotte Yale and Eleanor Vance, sort of finds their work, stumbles on on their work. Um, they are uh, craftspeople and artists and she starts this thing called Biltmore Industries and hires Yale and Vance, and they have their own histories, which are are really compelling and interesting, to begin a school there, sort of an apprenticeship school for, unfortunately for boys only at first, but it eventually opened to girls as well, that would take mountain craft culture, which was very much in, you know, the daily lives of of families that lived there, but take the craft culture and build upon it as a curriculum. Homespun fabrics, for example, you know, produced for market. And this would go on to contribute to a whole movement of homespun cloth in fashion. Uh, Edith would accompany students to fairs, agricultural schools, and the company actually made quite a bit of money and was really successful for its students. Um, there was Biltmore School of Domestic Science for Colored Girls, and this is a difficult history to discuss, um, and this is something that Edith was part of as well. 
It's difficult to discuss because the terminologies obviously uh, age terribly, age horribly. So the setup and the setup obviously ages poorly as well. Um, it was that black women were picked to be trained in housekeeping, cooking, uh, limited to those skills, you know the drill. At the time, it was considered rather progressive and forward helping the black community in Asheville. But again, it's it's something that, you know, to mention it just uh, fleetingly doesn't seem to do it any justice. That's a very complicated history. And I wish I had time to delve into that more. But uh, she was part of, found, of founding that as well. You know, this was, it was a village, it was a community, it was a a French chateau, a world away, trying to function as a, as a town, um, but also as an escape. It's just a strange identity for a place to have. And all the working parts of this organism, uh, you know, are chaotic and not always working in tandem. Uh, Old Asheville, New Asheville, you know, all that lay in between and all of the people and the individual hands that were on site at Biltmore to make it run every day. You know, at the house, hallways and hallways of rooms for guests that came from all manner of American and European society, like I mentioned, where they called for tea at any hour from the house's service through a previously unheard of electric call button and electric dumbwaiter system. Uh, There was a bowling alley in the basement, still there, a 70,000-gallon swimming pool, uh, one now that sits very eerily empty, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, because it's beyond repair and it would flood the whole house, I think I read, if if it saw water (laughs) poured into it now. So, you know, again, I talked about the setup of Biltmore and Biltmore Village being rather futile uh, in part one, and, and unfortunately, some of this definitely illustrates that, you know, the the luxury of the world inside the estate versus the sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, real world outside its doors. In 1903, Frederick Law Olmsted died, you know, the man who had conceived of the, you know, Biltmore Forest and, and the estate's vibe, <laughs> to put a sort of modern, you know, word on on it. Um, Cornelia, as a child, apparently just, you know, ran the household as cute little girls tend to do. I've got one of those. Uh, And the estate was her playground. She went to school with the estate children. It's at this point, according according to all accounts, though, that George began to feel kind of the punch and the pinch of the place, you know, finishing touches inside the home, uh, like I mentioned, had slowed down. They were running low on just pure cash to keep it going. They leased the Fifth Avenue house in New York. That was a big deal. Uh, George began quietly inquiring about selling off various parts of his very, very, very vast holdings. There was the panic of 1907. And, you know, this is where we learn in high school history, at least in America, and it's right in, it's crucial to learn. So I'm glad we do on this one. But this is where JP Morgan emerges to loan money to the New York Stock Exchange and saves the economy. And this is Titanic story really too, because you know Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company acquired the White Star Line in 1902, 10 years before Titanic sailed. So Titanic is in many in many ways, his ship. Uh, timber prices are falling, which obviously hits Biltmore and its timber and, and forest, you know, practices and, and programs uh, and, and hopes um, 
at least for Shank, of making money off of uh, the Biltmore Forest and and making it a sustainable but profitable forest. But life at the house went on seemingly as usual to the naked eye at this point. At Christmas in 1907, 50 wagons of holly and mistletoe made it up that long drive. Uh, there were three celebrations, one of which hosted a thousand people. There was a 30-foot-tall tree in the banquet hall, and a seven-year-old Cornelia flipped the switch to turn all of the magical lights on. Debates over the land simmered and boiled, though. George wanted Shank, Carl Shank, the forester, to sell off some of his land, uh, George's land, uh, not Shank's land. It wouldn't have been his. He was working the land. Uh, and instead, the forester leased hunting and fishing rights to 80,000 acres of George's. And this is a much more complicated story involving land use and the politics of this whole place, more than I can cover here. But And, and I would go to Kiernan's book for some of that. But just know that this caused just an irreparable rift. Uh, and Shank's time at Biltmore ended. And I want to read to you uh, just a little bit from Kiernan's book here about Carl Shank. I just think it's so, uh, so well done and so encapsulates a time in history and uh, really highlights the importance of, of his work. Beginning the quote, Shank's 14-year stay at the estate had been both innovative and memorable. He had searched the lands for radium for Thomas Edison, a friend of his cousins, pharmaceutical chemist George Merck, who was convinced the rocks in and around the estate might supply what he needed for his own experiments. Schenck had educated young men who would make fine foresters in both the private and the public sectors. Schenck had enjoyed sleeping under the stars, whether escorting George, Edith, and their guests on camping trips to the Pink Beds or to the Buck Spring Lodge. He would remember the sight of pink rhododendron and the voices of black construction workers singing, Jesus, lover of my soul. As the swing of their hammers created order from chaos, roads and safe passage in the midst of the ancient Appalachian undergrowth. I think that's uh, really a great sort of summation of a lot of the history of that time. And I also like how Kiernan uh, really recognizes the contribution of black workers in literally building the place. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to read that. So sort of an end of an era when he breaks ties, when Shank breaks ties with Biltmore. George and Edith and Cornelia, they move to DC for a lot of the year. Uh, George buys a house on K Street and Cornelia goes to a private school there. And this is an important distinction. You know, you'll You'll read a lot of materials about Biltmore that will sort of tout the Vanderbilt's involvement in the local community, you know, so much so that they sent their own child to school with the estate children at the, you know, regular school. And this is true, but I will say that one of the main reasons they moved to D.C., you know, uh, I think it's around 1911, 1912, is because they want Cornelia, you know, once she reaches a certain age, to be educated in a wealthier um, and sort of more refined and traditional setting. So, you know, that's definitely one way to interpret that is that the local schools in Asheville were good enough to appoint. And I just think it's important to, to uh, shine a light on that detail. So Chauncey Beadle was left at Biltmore to tend to it and became perhaps its most permanent and truest resident. In the spring of 1912, George and Edith are in Paris 
and they are originally contemplating a return home on Titanic. So they are often put into the sort of roles of the Just Mystic Club on Titanic. There were a, a reportedly a few Vanderbilt family members that mistakenly thought they were on it. Um, obviously, they were not. In March of 1914, George died very suddenly from complications after an appendectomy, which was surprisingly already pretty routine at that point as far as a surgery. Uh, he was 51 years old. Not very old at all. Biltmore's first story was cut off sooner than anyone imagined. George had, one can only surmise, built his front chateau with the image of himself as an old man in its library, but he died very unexpectedly. Cornelia, just 14 at the time, was in the will, promised the house along with $5 million in a trust from Blatherskite. <laughs> Remember George's dad? Uh, that's what the Commodore called him, which meant fool, but uh, he wasn't at all. Uh, who had also, though, the Blatherskite, George's dad, had stipulated that, uh, and his dad was William Henry, just so you know, not actually Blatherskite. Uh, he had stipulated that the New York Vanderbilt residences and the art within it would remain only with male heirs, though. So there you go. Edith received $250,000 life insurance and the Pisca Forest, but there were debts and Biltmore House was huge and the village was huge and there was a lot to take care of and a lot to pay for the maintenance of. And I, you know, go ahead and tell you now that there is a whole other side story and, you know, it's in Kiernan's book. So read that book if you're interested. Whole other side story of real estate holdings in terms of Biltmore Company, which is this company that is eventually uh, put together to hold everything in trust. And there's Biltmore Forest, which is a housing development that I believe is still there. Uh, the selling off of parts of the village at one point. And there's a whole real estate history in terms of, of Asheville history here. And I, I don't have time to go into that, but it is important. Another little tidbit you might remember from 10th grade history here in America, uh, the Weeks Act allowed the federal government to purchase private lands for preservation. So Edith worked this negotiated this, and Pisgah Forest became the first national forest in the eastern United States, you know, founded under this Weeks Act. There is so much of the estate's history in these World War I years, uh, headed into the 20s, and so much that Edith went on to do, including becoming president of the North Carolina Agricultural Society. Edith, you know, deserves her own biography. It's fascinating life. Many, many times, Biltmore could have ended up chopped up for auction blocks, its treasures sold off. But it was Edith's tireless planning and finagling that kept it whole, you know, in her husband's legacy. During this period, Edith and her daughter still held fancy dress balls. There are photos of a teenaged Cornelia with her friends at the house. There was still a, a place, this was still a place of children of privilege. And Edith claimed she had, quote, no interest in society. Uh, and truly, you know, as I talked about, her philanthropy was incalculable in North Carolina. But to note, you know, 
all this is still going on. There is still some vestige of, you know, life at the house that is maintained. Uh, but Edith would eventually go on to remarry. Uh, also, <laughs> uh, a fact which rails against her claim uh, to no interest in society because uh, she remarried a high-profile politician named Peter Jerry, grandson of the fifth vice president of the United States and the family from which literally we get the term gerrymandering. Seriously, look it up. Again, she deserves her own history. She's in this whole second half of her life with her second husband in D.C. involved in politics. Um, Cornelia kept up one of the last vestiges of society days when she married another society um, bordering on royal person, uh, John Cecil at Biltmore when she was just 23. Uh, this is 1923. They have the wedding, a grand wedding at Biltmore. There are... Uh, there are photos of her in her voluminous wedding dress at the foot of the staircase at Biltmore. I definitely recommend looking those up. I'll, I'll try to remember to put that on socials too. But Cecil was a diplomat and he was the son of a lord, Lord William Cecil of London. And he was also older than Cornelia, I think only about 10 years. But if you look at photos, it looks like more than that. So this really is a very transitional era at Biltmore. You have a fading house. Literally, uh, things are fading. Tapestries are dirty. R some rooms have been shut up because there's just not the money to maintain them. I mean, if you, and this is a big part of Biltmore today, when you think about the money it takes to keep it going, if you just imagine cleaning every single room at Biltmore, <laughs> uh, including servants' quarters, including the kitchens, the bathrooms, everything, the whole house, top to bottom, just the costs on that then and now is, you know, a budget item that just is out of this world. I have no idea how much it costs, but I can't imagine. And I'm sure it has to be done on, you know, a constant uh, and very well-managed rotation. So they shut down parts of the house so that they don't have to maintain them. So Billmore is losing some of its original luster, but you've got this young woman, this young, vibrant Vanderbilt living there, at least some of the year with her new husband. And they are keeping up, like I said, some of this sort of party atmosphere, but infused in this party atmosphere is now these new um, sort of mindsets and ideas and artistic impulses of the 1920s, of the jazz age. I mean, think about Great Gatsby, you know, like that's sort of how I envision her at this point, someone that would just walk out of the pages of that novel. There is a place in the house called the Halloween Room in the basement area that it's just a place where the walls are covered in paintings of characters from folklore. There's like a platoon of soldiers. There's all of this imaginative imagery, some of which looks rather dark and monster-like, which is why it started to be called the Halloween Room. There was speculation for years about how these murals came to be down there. Turns out Cornelia and her friends, you know, they just used to drink down there and hang out and they lived there. They gossiped there. They loved there, I'm sure. And she was modern. She was fun. She had money. She would have these parties. And here the world is changing and Biltmore is sort of outside the world. It's like a weird place to live within the space Cornelia inhabited. And she brings, you know, friends in to this chateau 
And so these murals are a product of one of those parties. Apparently there was a weekend house party and John and Cornelia just asked their friends to paint the walls. And it is a sight to behold. And we'll talk about it again here in a minute in terms of some paranormal stuff. So this party though, was not on Halloween. It was later discovered it was in December of 1925 to prepare the room for a New Year's Eve celebration. So interesting. Uh, in 1929, of course, the the Great Crash, um, the Great Economic Depression, uh, ownership hadn't transferred to Cornelia yet because Edith and a brother-in-law were trustees and the upkeep, like I talked about, was intense and they didn't feel like she was ready to take that over. So we'll talk about all that here in a minute. But, you know, thankfully, that <laughs> there was this management in the 20s of, of keeping the estate and, and what was inside it together. In March of 1930, the Cecils opened the house to the public for the first time ever, save for just a few, you know, random tours here and there, uh, perhaps once in a while when the Vanderbilts were gone. But those tours would have typically been for wealthier people passing through. So the Cecils needed money, though, in 1930. They had two sons at Biltmore, George and William. So they had a family. Uh, just to note, uh, think about it, uh, George and William, each named after a grandfather. So George Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Cornelia's dad, and then William uh, John's dad from over in London. Cornelia begins to travel a lot during this time in the early 1930s, uh, signaling a lot of gossip columnists to speculate that their marriage was in trouble. And indeed it was her marriage with John. She was no longer considered, you know, who they'd called Tar Heel Nell at points, you know, the daughter of Asheville. She was like I said, a modern woman, and she began to feel very restless in her life. There is a divorce drama in Switzerland where she's involved with a married man. There's later a marriage to a much younger man. Uh, she lives in Europe for the rest of her life. But honestly, I think, yeah, I'm not going to go into the details of all that because I think some of this narrative about Cornelia is very sexist. You know, this idea that she sort of went crazy and it's evidenced by her dealings with men. I don't, historians and journalists have, have traditionally not written about men that way, only women. It's very sexist. But what's more important to know is that she wanted to sell Biltmore, but the Biltmore Company, formed as a trust, gave her money from the sale of a Staten Island property instead and eventually gave her $2 million. She never came back to Biltmore, this place that she'd been born from, this place she'd roamed wild as a child, this place she'd watched her father sip his brandy late at night in his library. She became mostly anonymous in London and Paris and the places she lived uh, very quietly. Uh, she founded a, a fund to help uh, those in need in London. And it was known as the Mrs. Smith Fund because she wanted to remain anonymous. But weirdly, John Cecil stayed at Biltmore and loved it. And it was, you know, he wasn't a Vanderbilt. He married into the family, but it became kind of his place. And even in the down times when there was no money to upkeep the house, he stayed in just a bachelor wing of the house and kept just a few uh, rooms running. Artwork from the National Gallery was stored there in World War II. It's an interesting part of its history. In the summer of 1947, we know uh, that life 
of current Bill Maher sort of, you know, came to be because the grandsons came back, William and George. They lived in Europe and had not been to their family's North Carolina chateau since they were small boys running on the property. Edith, Chauncey Beadle, they died in the 1950s. Uh, the last sort of vestiges of the first chapter of Biltmore's history. In the 1950s, like I said, William Cecil, uh, one of the grandsons, he comes back and he's, you know, in his 20s at this point, he's uh, looking for ways to become a part of the estate, learning the land his grandfather had purchased and changed, learning the house that George had filled with art and books and nearly priceless things like tapestries, a place, yes, still stuck in time and showing its age. To many, the Biltmore Company was basically a real estate holding company at that time, though the dairy, just to note, is its own history and continued to be lucrative and was, in fact, probably the most historically lucrative part of the whole endeavor in terms of money, like I mentioned before. The tourism money was scant. Uh, people came through the house but usually never came back. Only portions of the home were restored or presentable. It was a mess. A gorgeous mess, but a mess. It took a lot of money to keep this place up and running, and there was nothing left to put towards renovation, restoration at that time. And yes, Cecil was a Vanderbilt. Yes, he was the product of privilege, but he'd been born at the end of an era. And he was also a man who actively chose to sort of stay on a sinking ship in a way, if you'll forgive me for using that particular metaphor. No one believed in Biltmore in the 1950s, 1960s, even the 1970s. But William Cecil did, Bill Cecil did. And his brother George was very active in the estate as well, but eventually was sort of bought out uh, in the you know grander scheme of, of keeping the actual estate going. And there was some tension between the brothers and, you know, all of that is in um, Kiernan's book and also in another book I'm going to mention here in a minute, or actually let me go ahead and mention it. Another big source for this episode was the book Lady on the Hill by Howard E. Covington Jr. It is the book that is on sale in the Biltmore gift shop. It is not so much a history of the house, but more a history of how Bill Cecil saved Biltmore and made it what it is today. So I want to break down here, though, just the basics of what Bill Cecil did. As Covington points out, Cecil found his allies in the travel industry and not academia. Biltmore was not a museum. Uh, he, when he started taking over operations in a tourist sense, was a museum, didn't have docents and pamphlets. It was a house that you went through. He applied for government tax breaks, funding all of it over the years, but the federal government wasn't keen on handing over any kind of break to a member of the Vanderbilts, a family synonymous with wealth accumulation for so many years. So Bill turned to profit to care for the house, and to do that, he needed to make it, you know, need to revive it, to make it beautiful and complete again. He did things public historians and museums wouldn't have done, you know, like matching paint, matching tile, matching floor, redoing flooring, renovation, restoration. But it worked. Cecil started in the 60s and 70s taking his own tourism photos, begging for space in newspapers. But by the 1980s, everybody was taking 
notice. He built a winery no one believed in uh, in 1985 is when that was, brought in experts from Europe to make the wine, and he, you know, made wine flow in Asheville, and now it's one of its biggest money-making components. The private management of a place like this, it was unprecedented. It is unprecedented in the United States and in the UK. You know, most homes like this don't survive intact. It's a very big deal. Today, the estate sees almost 2 million visitors a year from all over the world. Uh, It's one of the biggest tourist attractions in the whole country. There are multiple hotels on site, hiking, rafting, horseback riding, adventures. You can have a yearly pass, um, a kid's corral, basically, the winery, almost a dozen dining options from what I remember from the last time we were there. The point is there are a lot of people there now, so many more than George would have ever imagined. And it takes some flack for the amount of profit the Biltmore Company now turns. You know, that's definitely... Thing, I mean, you know, ticket prices are expensive, so it is still a question of privilege. And there's definitely way more for sale in the gift shop than George Vanderbilt or even Bill, who died in 2017, and now it's it's still in the family with his son, uh, would have ever imagined. So I want to talk a little bit about who else is supposedly still at Biltmore. There are ghosts of Biltmore, right? And metaphorically, surely, but some people believe literally. And I want to share a story of mine, which sort of opened up my exploration of Biltmore as a site of potentially paranormal activity. So the last time that I was there, I was there with my whole family, my husband, John, my two kids, our two kids, (laughs) there is two. And we went last summer It was June of 2021. We went and visited a lot of people near and dear to us back in the Southeast coming out of COVID. And uh, we went to Asheville. It's our favorite place in the world. We hopefully will eventually live there. We're, We're thinking about moving there. So if you are from Asheville, you know, follow me on, on socials. Let's talk about it. So we're there in June, it's crowded, and we've been through the house before, but never with the whole, you know, um, guy, audio guide in our ears with our kids who had their own audio guides, like never before at a time when both of our kids were old enough to really understand the place and to hear the audio guide and to get into it. So we spent some time there. And when we got down to the Halloween room, and I'd been in there before, because like I said, I've been to Biltmore several times over the years. When we got down to the Halloween room, I began to feel a heightened sense of anxiety. And I am a person who's very in tune with my anxiety. I have, uh, panic disorder, man. <laughs> like I I am, am the person who can have a panic attack at the drop of a hat. I am the textbook panic attack person. I, you know, lightheaded, heart racing, feel like I'm going to die, the classic panic attack symptoms. And I, I began to have a really, really bad one when we were down there in the Halloween room and just felt so uneasy. And I said this to my husband and he looked at me kind of white in the face. He was white in the face too. And he said, yeah, me too, right now. And we brushed it off. We had our kids with us to sort of power through is what we had to do. And we felt better. But later on in the tour, we ended up on a landing of the big grand staircase as well. And we both had that feeling again. And it was towards the end of the of the tour at that point. So we got out, got some fresh air. We were obviously fine. But 
When we were driving on a leg of our road trip a couple of days later, sort of bored as the passenger in the car, and I began Googling, you know, are there any ghost stories at Biltmore? I love a good ghost story. I love a, a haunted history. And sure enough, the two or two of the spots most reported for some level of paranormal activity were those two spots, the Halloween room and then the landing on the staircase. So make of that what you will. But I did just want to share a couple of other stories that I ran across online. So George Vanderbilt was obviously, like I talked about, very proud of his massive library. And he would spend a lot of time there, you know, reading his books, uh, organizing his rare editions, uh, using his custom book plates to organize his whole collection. It was his habit, apparently, to go into the library when he saw a storm coming. And apparently his ghost has maybe continued this particular habit because workers and visitors are said to see a shadowy figure in the library that seems to be him. And it's usually when the skies outside are dark and there's some sort of sense of a coming storm. And apparently Edith is also known to be seen there. She was known to make the walk down to George's library to remind her husband when it was time to come eat, come be with guests. And today, a lot of people claim to pass through the library and report hearing a woman's voice whispering George or whispering for him to come. People also report the sounds of you know a phantom party, clinking glasses, laughter, music echoing in hallways. There have been reports of splashing sounds in the pool. Of course, the pool is now empty. So, you know, and, and it's, I, I listen to a lot of paranormal podcasts. I read a lot of, of history of supposedly haunted places. And this is something that comes up, oops, excuse me. This is something that comes up a lot. This idea of ghosts on a loop of their old behaviors, you know, George in his library in a storm, Edith walking it down a hallway to get him, the parties that went on at this estate. So if you do believe in that sort of thing, there's this idea that that era of Biltmore is sort of on loop in the hallways, on loop in the rooms in this other, you know, dimension. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, enough stories and you start to believe there could be something to that. Is the myth of the man of a time gone sort of a return to something we all crave in some way? Is there a reason why we want to continue feeding that narrative? You know, wealth, books, pipe smoke, the mountains framed in the window. You know, it seems like some sort of perfect bygone time. It's some feeling we chase collectively, I think, that feeling of an eternal party punctuated only by periods of indulgent rest. I mean, doesn't that sound kind of amazing? <laughs> and it's the same, you know, arguably the same reason we see apparitions in old windows after enough decades have passed, you know, a time gone by. Oftentimes something considered a simpler time gone by maybe a little desire to live that way. I don't know. In Biltmore's case, it's, you know, the library and cigar smoke and brandy at the elbow, you know, or is there something to it all? And that's a bigger conversation. And I don't know how much of my new podcast, Mythic Americana, will get into that conversation. I mean, 
maybe I would love to have some people on that write about haunted places and their histories to talk about the history and some of the sort of nitty gritty of what people think is the real paranormal. So maybe, um, you know, time loops are a real, like I said, a really big theme in this. Um, there's a podcast I love called a funny feeling, which is hosted by two comedians and they, break down listener stories of paranormal. They have guests on talk about the paranormal and they've taught time loops come up a lot in those stories of, you know, from people from all over the world that have written into that podcast of, you know, moments where people have time slipped into or claim to have obviously into another loop of time, you know, where two periods intersect and it seems like the past period is just kind of on a loop in a place. I remember talking to one of the docents at the Whaley House Museum in San Diego, which is claimed to fame, one of the hottest houses in America. And the docent was saying that that was their, that was the biggest sort of complaint of people that worked there or guests that came. I mean, maybe not complaint because some people want to see ghost activity, but that that he said that, that that was the main report is just seeing visions of people that seem to be going about their daily tasks and unaware that anybody is watching them. Biltmore is a place of unfulfilled promises, unfinished rooms, you know, maybe a, a little bit more pacing than partying over the years. And so it doesn't surprise me that this could be a place of that loop, that restlessness, you know, a place like Billmore is so light and bright now, but it also represents a fair amount of American darkness and anxiety. You know, the stories of wealth make us nervous and make us feel dark, but we also chase them and love talking about them. So I think Biltmore is a, a pretty important embodiment of those themes. All right. Do you have a Biltmore story? If so, let me know. Write to me, unsinkablepod at gmail.com. Or just find me on Insta, Unsinkable Pod, Twitter, Unsinkable Pod. Reach out. Let me know if you've had an experience there. You have anything from there to share. Do you have a mythic American place that means something to you that you've had an experience at or that you've just been and you've kind of sunk into the place and loved it and you would love for me to dig into the history of it a little bit? Let me know. I envision Mythic Americana being a side project. Unsinkable is still going to be my main endeavor. But I, you know, once or twice a month, imagine just delving into a historic place and you know, looking at the, again, the literal and metaphorical ghosts of a place. So, you know, send suggestions. I would love to hear what type of places you would like me to cover. And I will for sure announce in this feed whenever that pod becomes an official thing. I have no idea when. Um, in an ideal world, sometime early in the fall, but uh, Unsinkable is about to rev back up. I've got a lot of research I'm in the middle of. And also uh, just you know, the interviews that I'm, I'm planning and scheduling right now got me excited and, and reading a lot of different stuff. So hopefully early fall, but could be more into maybe Halloween time might be a perfect <laughs> debut for that. So watch this space. And of course, I will see you back here in early September for season two of Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast, my baby I've birthed. And 
And like I said, I've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up. I'm going to talk to some Titanic descendants. I am going to base some episodes around some travel that I'm hoping to do this coming month. I am going to uh, attend Titanic Con in Pigeon Forge at the end of August. So I'm going to base an episode around my experiences there. If you are able to make it, if you're in the area, uh, look up the info on the Titanic Museum Attraction Pigeon Forge website, and you can register for the conference there. It's open to everybody. So if you're in the area or you are able to travel, August 25th is the date on that, uh, 2022. So if you're listening to this in the future, um, I think it's a yearly thing, but I'm not sure. So I will be there. I'm excited to meet lots of other Titanic enthusiasts and and hopefully make some wonderful connections of people to have on the show as well. And I'm also developing just some of my standard episodes, you know, biographical episodes on passengers. I am going to, like I said, at the end of season one, incorporate a few more episodes that are conversational. I've got a friend of mine that's going to come on and just talk about Irish history with me. So yeah, I'm excited. It's starting to take shape. This summer has been just absolutely chaotic and I was smart to take off uh, during the summer. And and now I'm just ready to head back into podcast life, so to speak. So thanks for being here. I really appreciate your listening, especially to this little side project like this. And yeah, hope your summer's going great. Stay unsinkable. Talk soon. Bye guys.